colleagues, Anthony McKay, President and CEO of the National Centre on Education and the Economy, welcoming you to Global Ed Talks. And today, a very, very warm welcome to Professor Jarl Mater. Jarl, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tony. Well, it's great to have you here and um, for a conversation that uh, many have been looking forward to because uh, you bring um, a remarkable experience to the work that probably most, most recently uh, have shared in your In Search of Deeper Learning, uh, the book you co-wrote with uh, Sarah Fine. And of course, the, the subtitle is The Quest to Remake the American High School. Um, let me just say this before we launch in uh, to the conversation. Uh, you bring to this uh, not only your scholarship uh, based at Harvard um, and your research work, and now an extensive uh, series of writings and very significant books, um, but you're also, uh, I think, um, a sociologist, a political scientist, as well as being an educationalist. And uh, you're reasonably active, Jal. I mean, you're out there as a blogger and podcaster, so people are aware of it. They mightn't be as aware of the fact, though, that you're in the field, that you do a serious amount of work uh, with practitioners, uh, not only uh, across districts in the US and Canada, but internationally as well. So you bring all of that to the way in which you've been making a very strong argument uh, for deeper learning. Let, let me, well, let me before, uh, continue. Yeah, before, before we launch into it, uh, give me a quick response. Um, well, just that we lost our colleague and friend, uh, Richard Elmore this year. And when I came to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, he always seemed like the most knowledgeable person uh, in the room. And I, when I dug under the hood a little to understand why that was, it was because he was in schools uh, at least a day every week. And uh, I wouldn't say that I maintain anywhere near that pace, but it really showed, you know, other people in the conversation would be relying on their own schooling experience or their kids or, you know, they taught in this school 20 years ago. And Richard would be like, yeah, but in, uh, you know, Cambridge Ridge and Latin last week, this reform you're talking about so positively, like if you really knew what was happening on the ground, like this is what I saw with teachers and students. And yeah. I thought, you know, I, I want to be more like that guy. So uh, just just in this year in which he passed, he's influenced so many of us, but I, I really think I would have an entirely different career had I not met uh, Richard and had that experience. That is so right. <laughs> uh, the admiration and the affection, but the influence on all of us, uh, truly remarkable. And we might, we might come back to that at the end of this conversation because um, there was a real sense in the last episode of his work where he challenged us about just what the nature of the task is, uh, which is where I think we should start, uh, Jal, because um, you have uh, often talked about what is and then what should be as we think about learners and the way in which we want all young learners to be engaged in powerful learning. And you've argued that uh, to move from what is to what should be will take a significant shift in the grammar of schooling. What does that mean? 
So the grammar of schooling is a concept by another of our uh, set of colleagues, David Tyack and Larry Cuban from Stanford, which is basically just the underlying assumptions we have about what it means to do school. So the idea that uh, subjects are uh, divided, that students are divided by perceived ability, that students are divided by age level, that students sit uh, 20 to 30 with a teacher. Um, um, all of those things are things that we just kind of assume. So if you're thinking of the high school in particular, the, the seven period day, the rush through all the different subjects, the uh, examinations and APs at the end of that, like all of that are essentially human creations about what we think you should do with adolescents between 14 and 18 years old. And I guess what I observed in schools is um, it was often like students and teachers were participating in a play that neither had drafted and neither really wanted to be part of. So the students were saying, you know, I need to get a 98 on this test because my parents said that I, I wanted to. And then we talked to the parents and the parents said, well, we didn't necessarily want that, but if they don't do that, then the colleges won't like it. And the teachers said, well, we don't wanna be rushing through this material, but if they don't get to the end, then the parents will be unhappy. And so essentially sort of everybody had been conscripted uh, into this uh, play that no one was really that uh, happy with. And then there was this kind of alternate grammar uh, after school where uh, people were doing things in on playing fields or theater or dance studio or arts or newspaper, where people were doing things that they found meaningful, where they had enough time to do them, where there were opportunities for revision, where they could learn from older students. And there was a lot of apprenticeship learning, where there was a lot of learning by doing. Um, and so one big question Sarah and I were left with when we finished the book was, you know, could we get this kind of second grammar uh, more into the first? The second one just seemed to be much more promising on so many different dimensions. The students told us so, the teachers told us so, the parents told us so, and our lived observations of their work, the, like the quality of the work that they could do uh, told us so. And so I think a big question that we should think about is like, how might we sort of change the grammar of the comprehensive high school to more resemble this, this second grammar? Joe, just on that point, before we talk about um, how we might do it, the kind of shift that is clearly implied by the argument, yep, just say a word about, a, a further word about what it looks like, because uh, in the book, you can bring this to life. Uh, often people talk about this as being the bright spots uh, or the beautiful exceptions, but the truth of the matter is they are everywhere. <laughs> um, and, and in some places now we're seeing uh, a real commitment to not just simply a single site, but to clusters and networks. So it's not as if this way of thinking and doing is not alive and well, but um, how do you, to some extent, capture right, the level of action? Uh, the, before we talk about how you, how you get there, for those who already are, operating in that space. How, how do you view that? Yeah, that's a great uh, question, Tony. Um, so like, you know, for
for example, in an English class, for example, we saw uh, with a high poverty set of students uh, in Boston, uh, mostly African-American, um, you know, we saw a teacher taking a Ta-Nehisi Coates essay, which was in the New York Times, this is around 2013, and it was about uh, the use of the use of the N word, and uh, Coates's argument was that um, uh, it shouldn't always be prohibited. It depended on the race of the speaker, and it depended on the context. So you know, this you give this essay to a bunch of uh, black and Latinx 16 and 17 year olds. Like this is a topic that they're very interested in. Yep. The first day, they spent a lot of time just deconstructing the argument. And there was a lot of teaching going on about, you know, what is he saying in this paragraph and how would you know and that sort of thing. And then on the second day, they um, they had a debate, like an argument over under what conditions, if ever, should you be able to say the N-word. And then on the third day, they analyzed the, the form of the piece. And so the... Um, you know, the teacher said, like, you know, we've taught you in school that an essay should have a thesis statement. Um, this is an essay. It was published in the New York Times. This guy, pretty famous essay writer. It doesn't have an. It doesn't have a thesis at the end of the first paragraph. We taught you that every paragraph after that should start with a topic sentence that links to the thesis. This guy doesn't do that. What's up with that? And so essentially he was kind of inviting them into the world of what does it mean to really write an essay? And then they had to write their own essay on the topic. And then they had to write a reflective piece on how they had chosen to structure their essay and why they had made the choices that they did. So you can just see in that little uh, movement, the way in which a really skillful teacher brought in students' identity, taught them something about form, connected them to a real writer in the field, and sort of invited them to play the whole game uh, of essay writing. So uh, when Sarah and I went to schools, our, what we would do on the first couple of days is we would just uh, each staple ourselves to a student, maybe a higher track student and a lower track student, and just go through the day with those students. And uh, invariably, we would have three or four or five kind of disappointing experiences and one or two really soul-stirring positive experiences. So uh, we went into it, I think, thinking, you know, we're gonna profile a few schools and they have the secrets to everything and everybody else should come out of it. And we came out of it thinking, actually, there are, is already a lot of skilled teaching going on. You know, if you just stepped out the door and you walked a thousand feet in any direction and you poked your head into whatever the closest school you could find, I bet you would find teachers, programs, I think is particularly in the arts and music, um, uh, in apprenticeship, vocational 2.0 kind of spaces, you would find really good things already going on. The thing was though, that the structures were really inhibiting what they were doing. So the class I just described was uh, an English class, but it was in the elective part of the curriculum in African-American uh, literature and history. Uh, elective. So like really skilled teachers had tried to move to the elective part of the curriculum because they would have more uh, flexibility. And so um, I think the real question from a sort of systemic point of view is like, how can we make the exceptions the rules? The best people shouldn't have to 
kind of transcend the system, like secretly move away from the pacing guide, et cetera, in order to do their best work. The system should be supporting them to, yeah. do, their, to do their best work. Um, and so there's a lot of great stuff going on out there. It's just people are, are working against the grain and the grain should be supporting them. So Joel, this is exactly the point then, uh, where, where the structures, as you say, are inhibiting the commitment to the kind of deep learning that you're talking about. If that's the case within a school, it's writ large in the wider system. So if we were talking about the shift of a dominant grammar of schooling, acknowledging that that is by no means the entire experience across the US, we know, as you say, where we're already witnessing a new grammar of schooling. But if we're wanting to make this shift between a dominant to uh, welcome a new grammar of schooling that is wholly enabling of the kind of deep learning you're talking about, are there two or three things that you say, listen, this is what it's going to take? Well, I'll do my best, but um, you know, systems change by its nature can't be reduced to two or three things, but you have to have starting points, otherwise it feels paralyzing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, one starting point is uh, time. The way in which we use time in high schools is crazy. Everybody is frenetically busy but not that much is being accomplished. Uh, no offense to anybody who's working really hard. Uh, but um, if students were able to not take seven things at a time, but were doing three or four things at a time, which is a shift that lots of schools have already made, uh, that would enable them to do those things in more depth. If teachers were not supporting 150 or 160 students at a time, but were supporting 65 to 80 students at a time, that would enable them to form uh, deeper uh, relationships. Um, one thing that's really been striking from the international work is, you know, American teachers teach uh, on average 1,100 hours a year. And in uh, Japan, it's closer to 550 or 600, uh, you know. And so what happens to those other 500 hours? Those are hours spent planning, talking with colleagues and meeting with students and responding to student work. And like without those hours, you know, people are just trying to sort of like get from one thing to the next. You need that uh, space uh, and time. So creating enough space and time uh, would be one. Uh, teacher preparation uh, in a way that is uh, vertically aligned between uh, schools of education and other teacher prep institutions and schools and districts uh, would be another. The way we do it right now is, uh, you know, there are just far too many institutions at varying widely levels of quality from great to terrible. Uh, and then, but also what people learn there has very little connection necessarily to what they're going to be teaching or what their districts or schools expected of them. So all of that really should be kind of organized uh, towards deeper, powerful uh, learning. And then uh, if we're specifically talking about deeper, powerful learning, I think the, the curriculum uh, um, foregrounding, um, in British Columbia, they do five, um, five, five uh, key ideas 
and five key skills per subject per grade. Uh, so that's like um, about six weeks per uh, thing. And I think that um, when I've met with teachers there, that's, you know, my mode of research is to take things that people in the air say are great and go talk to teachers on the ground about how great they really are. And this is one of the few instances where the teachers on the ground uh, supported the reforms in the air. They said, you know, the standards like give us a rough sense that like these are the things that seventh graders should be able to do in our subject. But we have a lot of time and opportunity to collaborate and think about how that's going to happen. And we have enough time to do those things in enough uh, depth. So uh, those, those would be three yeah. main points. So John, but, but the way in which you began that, um, so right, uh, the kind of task we're talking about here, this new grammar of schooling, yeah, with all of the elements, system change with all of the components of a whole system, as you point out, can't be reduced to a few. But I think when you talk about deep learning and you call out those shifts, it really makes sense to people because that's their lived experience. What is perhaps less visible is actually the whole governance of the system, the accountability arrangement that we have in place, the way in which our assessment regime serves particular purposes, but not others. So as you sort of think about this new grammar of schooling, you think about all of those dimensions of the system. Are you, are you getting a sense that, that we can build the kind of momentum behind this? And I mean that in every dimension, including politically. I think, you know, when we interviewed teachers and we asked what most inhibited deep learning, they said teacher evaluation systems, district pacing guides and state tests. So all of those things could potentially be changed and all of those things exist in different forms elsewhere uh, in the world. So those are not you know, ingrained necessary aspects of schooling. They are things that certain people decided were a good idea and they managed to convince enough other powerful political people that they were a good idea, even though no one else in the world was doing them uh, in a in a similar fashion. Um, I think if we zoom out a little bit, um, uh, Richard Elmore, to return to him, uh, he said at one point, you know, it's the, it's the best time in the history of the world to be a learner unless you're in school with his uh, usual wry uh, humor. And I think there is a certain truth to that, which is that, um, you know, the, 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 not just the internet, but you know, the fact that the internet is not just a place where people receive material, but that they can interact and participate and so on and so forth. Um, you know, there's just, if you want to learn about anything from, you know, changing a tire to how to make a Japanese screen, uh, there are, there's everything from information, text, videos, groups you can join, coaches you can hire, like there is no shortage of an, of material to learn about virtually uh, anything these days. And I think over time that will have real uh, implications on school because as people realize that in uh, camps, community centers and other informal spaces, there's all of this really powerful learning going on. I think that will gradually exert pressure on the institution that is supposed to be the main institution Yes. Uh, learning. Yes. Well, let me let me uh, come back maybe uh, finally to 
the demand side that is going to encourage precisely the direction of travel that you're talking about, Charles. Yep. Because we've had a number of conversations in which I think uh, we understand the nature uh, of deep learning. But you go on to say this will therefore involve a quest to remake the American high school. You are not saying this will therefore require a quest to de-school. <laughs> so when it actually comes to remaking the American high school, we are talking about school, as you say, as being the force that could actually help us to get to deep levels of learning for all young people. That is the possibility. But on that demand side, importantly, we have young people themselves. So what's your sense? And of course, their families, their parents, their caregivers, their communities. What's your sense that one of the forces here that is really going to be able to help us to get to where we want to be in terms of deep learning? Yeah, let me take on sort of two parts of that. So sometimes people listen to what I'm saying. I remember one of my students coming up to me once at a conference or something, and she's saying to me, why don't we just burn it all down? Like, that's really what you're saying. And, and I, I really do not believe that. Um, I think that teachers are a phenomenal resource for students as they're, um, as they're learning things. And um, that it's just sort of romantic to think that even if we could solve the question of like custody and where young people would go during their day while their parents were at work, even if we could solve that somehow, um, I think it's just sort of romantic to think that like people could just pursue learning wherever, however they wanted. Like I, I think the structure of having some organization to the day and having some social accountability and being part of a community, the older I've gotten, the more I really believe that almost all valuable learning happens socially in community with other people who know more about something than you do. And so I think schools have tremendous potential to be those kinds of institutions. And I think that they already are in some places for some students some of the time. It's just the way that we've constructed the rules and the institutions uh, needs to change uh, to, to support that. So um, I really do believe in schools. And then um, in terms of forces for change, I think a really untapped constituency is the students themselves. So we've had governors, we've had you know, business roundtables, uh, we've had efforts to organize parents, we've got teachers, we've got teachers unions. Um, but the one group that's not represented is the group that ultimately all of this matters the most for, which is uh, the, the, the students. Uh, and so I think you know, we've seen students organize around uh, climate change, around um, gun control. And I really wonder what would happen if students were to organize around their own uh, education. Uh, a, a mentor of mine, uh, John Romer, who used to be the leader of the ACLU in Maryland before he became a teacher, said, you know, what if all the students from the highest poverty school in Baltimore which is where I lived, went to one of the nicest suburban schools. And you know, you just brought the seven or eight-year-olds over there. And they just walked in very peacefully and sat down and said, we're here and we're ready to learn. Like what would happen then? 
uh, because like, would the police be dragging out these seven or eight year old kids who just said, you know, hey, we're just here because we want, you know, a high quality education. Um, and I think that's a really interesting uh, thought experiment. I try to tell my own kids that like, in theory, the superintendent is in charge. But at the end of the day, like, if you all do not comply, everything else falls apart. And so you actually have tremendous power in this system if you were to work uh, collectively. So if students were to demand a purposeful, engaging, meaningful education that would help them develop the skills to become powerful uh, 21st century citizens uh, and sort of refuse to learn unless things were provided, like the whole world would come to a stop if uh, students essentially, you know, mobilized for that and uh, demanded it. Joe, that's a, uh, that is such a key point because when you talk about a new grammar of schooling, the power shift involved is crucial. Um, I have to say, um, you're in the field, we're in the field, we're working uh, in districts across the US, uh, Canada and elsewhere. Uh, this is the work that we're passionate about uh, collectively, and I know that uh, by combining forces, uh, we will see the opportunities of the shift that we're talking about coming sooner rather than later. Uh, Chal, let me just say to you, thank you very much uh, for this conversation, for the work, and for the way in which we hope over the coming couple of years we do see precisely what you talk about. Uh, deeper learning, redesigning our learning system so that all young people become powerful learners. Joel Mater, thank you. Thanks for having me, Tony.